This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. I hope everyone is enjoying Purim, which really is a two-day holiday. Today is known as Shushan Purim, the day Purim is celebrated in cities that were surrounded by walls in the days of Joshua, Jerusalem being the only city in the world that still qualifies today. So the topic for this week is everything you never thought you needed to know about Megillat Esther, the scroll of Esther. Megillah means scroll. If we had to give that biblical book a subtitle, the best one I could think of is already taken, A Comedy of Errors, with Haman being the biggest mistake maker in the piece. As actual history, though, the Megillah falls very short. It doesn't mean the story isn't true, but we'll get to that. In any case, absent any new discoveries, there never was a Persian queen named Esther, no viceroy named Mordechai, and we can only guess at whether King Ahasuerus is supposed to be Xerxes or Artaxerxes or some other Persian emperor, whether even he's a made-up character. If, as most scholars believe, Ahasuerus is meant to be Xerxes, then Mordechai would have been a hundred years old by the time this story took place. The king might be an invention. Persian kings, after all, didn't hold beauty contests to pick their queens. Their queens came from the aristocracy. The historian Herodotus says this was limited to choosing a queen from just seven specific families. Also, every Persian king we know of had strong minds of their own and didn't have to depend on a whole lot of comical courtiers telling them what to do. On the other hand, Esther's king bumbles through the story and can't seem to make even the simplest decisions without help. Despite, though, the notion that the scroll of Esther is a work of fiction, this probably is a true story, albeit one told basically in metaphor to avoid some nasty political repercussions while preserving an underlying message that the God of Israel is still protecting his treasured nation. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. And probably the same could be said about the location. It, too, may have been changed for the same reason. I have a theory about what the real story is, and I'll give you that first, and then I'll go into another intriguing theory. Here's my take. In 241 BCE, before the Common Era, meaning about 75 years before the Hasmoneans revolted against the Syrian king Antiochus IV, which is what our other minor festival, Hanukkah, celebrates, there was an Egyptian king named Ptolemy III Eurgetes. He fought a successful war against an earlier Syrian monarch named Seleucus II Callinicus. One of the territories this Egyptian king gained in that war was Judea. Both Egypt and the Seleucid Empire in Syria were Hellenized, meaning they were Greek in orientation because of the conquests of a Persian, Alexander the Great, which suggests how Persia comes into the story. 
even before Judea came under his control. Yergetes already had plenty of Jews in his kingdom. They'd been there for nearly 400 years, ever since the first exile. But it was only under Yergetes that Jewish communal life in Egypt actually began to thrive. In fact, he may have been responsible for the establishment of the very first synagogue in Egypt. It may even have been the first synagogue anywhere in the Jewish world, but that's open to debate and for another discussion. This synagogue was located about 20 miles outside Alexandria, and it bore this inscription, which is now in the Alexandrian Museum, quote, in honor of King Ptolemy and of Queen Berenice, his sister and wife, and their children, unquote. Given the fact that for nearly 400 years, the Jews of Egypt didn't even have a single house of assembly of any kind, suggests they weren't treated all that well during that time. In any case, suddenly, with Judea now under his rule, Ptolemy III Eugetes had a lot more Jews in his kingdom. He had to decide how to handle these Jews, especially considering that the Jews of Judea were of a rebellious nature when it came to foreigners tampering with their religious practices. His decision was to give them the freedom to worship as they pleased, in Judea and in Egypt, and to encourage an active Jewish communal life in Egypt. From the inscription in that synagogue, we can also assume that Queen Berenice played a serious role in that decision. Jugetes also decided to go the extra mile in letting the Jews know his intentions. Extra miles might be more accurate. He traveled to Jerusalem, went to the temple, and offered a sacrifice to the God of Israel for helping him to secure his victory over the Seleucids in Syria. It was a short-lived victory, as it turned out, because Egypt would lose Judea to the Seleucids after his death. In any case... There's no doubt that Eugetes' decision didn't sit well with many of his ministers and the Egyptian aristocracy. For the most part, they were avid Hellenizers. The idea that their king would allow Jews to openly defy the gods of Greece and worship their one true god had to have been the source of a great deal of friction, as it had been under the Seleucids in Judea and would be again when they regained control after Eugetes' death. That friction is probably where Berenice came in. She wasn't his sister, by the way, despite that inscription I mentioned. Her father was the king of Cyrenaica, which we know today as Libya. She herself was queen of Cyrenaica at the same time as she was Egypt's queen. Anyway, Berenice probably convinced Eugetes to ignore the opposition and stick with his plan, including going to Jerusalem. And she may even have devised a course of action to deflect the opposition. In order not to rankle the opposition to the point that it would become violently hostile, the story, when it was written, was moved to Persia. The names of the players were changed, and so was the nature of the plot. And Megillat Esther was born. That's my theory, and there are some scholars who also believe that. Supposedly working against this theory is the fact that the information about the Persian court and its many customs and institutions is quite authentic. And there are a number of Persian terms strewn throughout the book. This suggests an author of the Esther story who was well acquainted with Persian court life and that the story really is about Persia, which then raises the question of whether it's a true story. 
But I use the word supposedly because the Persian motif may actually support my theory, as you'll hear further on. A discussion in the Talmud suggests that the story is true and that Mordechai and Esther did exist. That would seem natural, after all. We wouldn't expect our sages of blessed memory to say that a biblical book and the religious observance it ordains were made up. Only, in this case, what the Talmud also seems to tell us is that the sages resisted for quite a while the request to institute the festival of Purim, or to even reduce the story of Esther and Mordechai to writing. That discussion begins with a statement made by a Babylonian sage named Shmuel Bar Yehuda. Apparently, Esther requested that the sages establish the festival of Purim throughout the Jewish world, and to have the story behind it written down and made part of the Tanakh, the Bible. Initially, the sages only agreed to establish Purim in the Persian capital city of Susa, or Shushan as we know it, presumably because that city was under Esther's and Mordechai's control, and so the sages were only giving in to a reality. Eventually, though, they did give in to both requests. Shmuel Bar Yehuda explains how that came about. The reason the sages initially rejected Esther's two requests, he says, was because they feared that a book that tells of the victory of Jews over non-Jews and a festival celebrating that victory would provoke anti-Jewish violence among the non-Jews. This answer didn't sit well with Esther. She responded to this by pointing out that the story was already in print, because as she supposedly put it, quote, I'm already written in the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia, so publishing my story won't tell people anything they don't already know, unquote. The sages still resisted the request for a book to be written, but this time they had to resort to dancing on the head of a pin kind of logic to explain why. But every suggestion someone came up with was immediately shot down by someone else. And so, a lengthy discussion ensued, and that discussion went nowhere. The end result was that they ran out of arguments and finally agreed to have Esther's story written down. They also agreed to have it read each year at Purim, which they also agreed to establish because it was in the book. Nevertheless, they refused to give this new book the sanctity of sacred scrolls. In fact, there was even resistance to including it in the Tanakh at all. It was included only after much debate. What Shmuel Bar Yehuda was reporting suggests that the sages were uncomfortable with the whole story. This discomfort shows up again in another enigmatic statement a few pages later. The sages note that the scroll of Esther says in chapter 10 that Mordechai was, quote, accepted by the majority of his brethren, unquote. By the majority of his brethren, not by all of them. Says the Talmud, quote, We learn from this that a portion of the Sanhedrin separated from him, unquote. The Sanhedrin was the official legislative body of Judea in Second Temple days, and for several hundred years later. That it didn't exist in Mordechai's day didn't seem to bother anyone because its point was that Mordechai didn't have the support of some of the most important communal leaders of his day. The Talmud doesn't give a reason for this, but most likely it was because the way Mordechai is depicted in the Megillah 
is not reflective of who Mordechai actually was. An assimilated Jew whose name is derived from the Babylonian god Marduk, just as Esther's name is derived from the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. The early sages, it seems, wanted to keep their distance. There was something about all of this that, to put it bluntly, wasn't kosher. That strongly suggests that the story is true overall, and that Mordechai and Esther were real, but their act had to be cleaned up when the sages finally consented to write it down and establish Purim for all time. And that brings me to an intriguing monograph published in 1921 in the Jewish Quarterly Review. It was written by a dropsy college professor named Jacob Hoshander, who set out to prove the historicity of the Book of Esther, building on these hints in the Talmud and in some other places. Mordechai, the professor says, with some justification, was born into one of the noble families among the Babylonian exiles. Those noble families had abandoned Jewish practices and had become idolaters. But once Persia took over, they abandoned idolatry. For one thing, Persian religion, Zoroastrianism, opposed polytheism. For another, Zoroastrianism had many beliefs that were consistent with Jewish ones, which made the Zoroastrians more partial to the Jews than to other groups. We know Mordechai was Babylonian born into such an elite family because of his name. Hoshander notes that the sages equate him with someone named Bilshan. This is very telling because if the sages were citing an actual tradition, then Mordechai's actual name would have been Marduk Belshunu, meaning Marduk is their lord. That doesn't prove that Mordechai or his father were idolaters, but it does suggest that his father, Yair, didn't want his son to be stuck with a Hebrew name that would stamp him as an alien, so he gave him a purely Babylonian name. Esther was also born in Babylonia. Her name is derived, as I said, from Ishtar. Her supposed Hebrew name, as we're told in the Megillah, is Hadassah. Hashander suggests that her full Babylonian name may have been Ishtar Udasha, meaning Ishtar is her light, which would account for her two names, Esther and Hadassah, Ishtar Udasha. Hashander goes through all of the clues he found in the Megillah itself and in the Talmud and elsewhere, and makes a strong case for his side. I'll spare you most of the details, but Pekitsur, in brief, he argues that, one, no Jew who is still true to Jewish practice would have had names associated with pagan gods. Two, no such Jew would have allowed a daughter to be a part of this kind of beauty contest, or the daughter wouldn't have agreed to it even if her parents insisted. And three, no such Jew would have done the things Esther did to disguise her Jewish identity. The professor notes, for example, that the Megillah states, quote, Esther had not disclosed her people nor her kindred, for Mordechai had charged her that she should not show it, unquote. Mordechai says this so matter-of-factly and without explanation, and Esther accepts it without objection, which sounds as though this was standard procedure for them when they were out in Persian society. 
Hashander also argues that Mordechai had a noble Jewish motive for wanting Esther to take part in the contest. If she emerged as the new queen, that would put her in a position to help the Jewish community if and when help was needed, which as it turned out it was. Hashander then says that the religious persecutions that soon broke out had an effect on Mordechai. Seeing the sufferings of the Jews, he openly declared his Jewishness and did everything in his power to help his people. But, says Hashander, quote, a change produced by sympathy, not conviction, never has a lasting effect. Mordechai, after his elevation to the rank of prime minister, was not and could not have been religious, unquote. It does explain why the sages were so reluctant to go along with Esther's two requests. But Hashander doesn't address the elephant in the room. There's nothing in the archaeological record to support the Megillah story. As I said, the authentic Persian detail in the story supports it being Persian story. But it's also one of the things that works against this story being Persian in origin, because we know Persia to have been rather tolerant towards its ethnic minorities, and especially the Jews, as I mentioned earlier. Persia, in fact, is treated rather well in the Tanakh, especially since it allowed the Jews to return to Judea and rebuild the temple. Listen to how Isaiah opens chapter 45 of his book. Quote, Thus said the Lord to Cyrus, God's Mashiach, God's anointed one, whose right hand God has grasped, treading down nations before him, ungirding the loins of kings, opening doors before him, and letting no gate stay shut, unquote. Think about that for a moment. Isaiah refers to a king of Persia as Mashiach, no less. Yet in the Esther story, we have a Persian king who's out to kill all the Jews. It defies logic. Many scholars dismiss any notion of historicity and, as I said at the beginning, absent any new archaeological evidence, we'll never know for sure. But the truth is, who cares? This story is and always has been our story. We've been subjected to Haman's in practically every generation, and we have downer days throughout the Jewish year to mark the evils they wrought. Purim is the one day each year when we get to have fun at their expense. Unlike Passover, Purim doesn't have a serious side. It's all about eating, drinking, and making merry. But it does have a serious message, one that the Hamans of the world never seem to learn, and one that's worthy of the kind of celebration we have on Purim. No matter what they throw at us, we're still here. They're gone, but we're still here. Enjoy this second day of Purim, and then enjoy Shabbat. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org www.shammai.org and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish Standard but want to read my latest column, go to my website's columns page. Haman was an Amalekite. This week's column is all about 
today's Amalekite, Vladimir Putin. Shabbat Shalom, stay healthy, including taking all COVID-19 precautions, including wearing N95 masks, getting fully vaccinated with booster shots, no matter what any government entity says otherwise. And above all, stay safe.